welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on August 7th, 2018 at Wellfleet Preservation Hall in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme was hair. Debbie King. Okay, thank you. You know I'm Debbie. And in January of 2017, I had to go starting chemotherapy. And if you've been through that before, you know someone who does or has been through it, you lose your hair. Um, And it's pretty wild to look at yourself without hair. Some gentlemen in the room may have already experienced that. Um, And maybe some women too. But I decided that if I was going to have a good attitude, I needed to look at it as a step that I needed to go through to get to the end of chemo. I also used my corny humor to get through things. And so when people asked me how I was doing, I said, well, there's a lot of advantages to not having your hair. Getting ready in the morning is really fast and not complicated. You save money on shampoo and hot water and all the products that you might otherwise use. Saved a lot of money on maintaining my brunette look and haircut and decided that that's how I would approach it. Well, I also got a wig and wanted to have it look as natural as possible, although it wasn't really me. It was something I felt good in. The first time I wore it was to synagogue on a Saturday morning for services, and I happened to be a greeter that day. And I was pretty self-conscious about what people would say or not say. And the first comment came from one of our oldest congregants, a little old lady who's very sweet, and came up to me and said, Debbie, I love your hair. Is it yours? (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, how do I answer this? And very quickly I realized I had paid for it, and so I said, why, yes, it is. (laughs) People made other comments too. Uh, There was a gentleman who was very well-intentioned and went on and on and on and on with how much he liked my new hairstyle, while everyone else in the room, I think, had figured out it was a wig. Well, my hair has grown back. I'm very happy to have it. But I know that there could be another time when I might lose it. And so I will remember that I will take very quick showers, save money on shampoo, and not have to worry about going to the hairdresser. Thank you. Uh, Next storyteller, Meryl. I'm 14 years old and I hate everyone. I'm especially not very happy with my parents who have moved us from Brooklyn where I had friends and I had a life to Long Island where I am an alien and I will always be an alien. Now everything on Long Island is huge. The houses are huge, the lawns are huge, the hair is huge. And I realize that I am never gonna have friends. And I, except I do develop two and they are Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. And I write suicidal poetry, too. (laughs) 
and I'm really conflicted because there's a part of me that just decides I'm going to cling to this. I'm going to be an individual. I don't need to fit in. And there's another part of me that really kind of wants to fit in. And so, you know, I go between like being a kind of a weirdo to um, buying Huckapoo shirts and platform shoes. And the worst mistake I make, though, is I get a perm. <laughs> now, I don't need a perm. <laughs> But I get a perm, and when I walk into my house after this experience, my father looks at me and he says, whoa. <laughs> and my mother says, you could wash it, because there's this three-day grace period when you get a perm where you can get rid of it. And after that, then you're screwed, you're stuck with it. So my parents really object to it, so I decide I'm going to keep it. <laughs> so it lives like a young shrub on my head. The very next day, we have to go to a bar mitzvah, and I hate bar mitzvahs too, so I'm sitting at a table with these cousins, and I'm miserable, which is my state, and there's this girl sitting next to me, and as they go around putting like this fat-laden gefilte fish into all the plates, she looks at me and she says, kill me now. So I immediately like this girl, <laughs> and neither of us want to eat bar mitzvah food, so we steal a bottle of whiskey, and we break into the sanctuary, and we lie on the bima and we tell each other stories while we get drunk. And we talk about things that we know about and things that we don't know about. We're talking about sex, we're talking about drugs, we're talking about what we want to do, we both want to be writers. And it's one o'clock in the morning when, our, when our, family, our families finally find us and we don't know that we've been missing, but we have. The next day, now I, I, you know, they drag me out of there and I'm upset because I finally have a friend and I want to have a friend. And the very next day this girl calls me and I'm really happy. So I go over to her house. Now I still have this voluminous perm that's waving in the breeze. I have to duck when I walk into her house. And we, she drags me into her bedroom where she has gotten the newest Judy Bloom book. It's called Forever. And this is the, one, the first book where teenagers have sex without immediately dying. <laughs> or, and apparently her daughter has requested that she write this book. So we're really excited that we have this book. Now it's 11 a.m. and she takes out a little baggie of weed. I have never gotten high before, and, but I'm not gonna tell her that, so I just follow and do whatever she does. She lights it up and I, okay. So we're, we're smoking out of this little pipe that she has and I, suddenly her face starts to turn green and it sort of disintegrates and I see buffalo and I think pot is not supposed to do this. Um, I see her face melting. I see what she looked like as a child and what she's going to look like as an old lady and I say we need to get out of here. It's not safe. So we run outside into her backyard and everything is really green. Like the sky is green and the clouds are green and I realize I am hallucinating. This, and she says, you know, I think that pot was tainted. And as soon as she says that, my heart starts beating really fast and I can hear my heartbeat and I can hear her heartbeat and I can hear the heartbeat of a bird in a nearby tree. <laughs> and the next thing that happens is this bu big blue Buick pulls up and I realize it's my mother. <laughs> so I'm like, oh shit, I don't wanna leave. I don't wanna leave my new friend. I don't wanna go with my mother while I'm hallucinating. And Daphne says to me, it's gonna be okay. Just don't talk. So she opens the car door for me. I slide onto the vinyl car seat. My mother says, we're going to the beauty parlor. I say, crap, my mother says I need to get a blowout. 
okay, of course you need to get a blowout while I'm hallucinating. So we go to the salon. My mother sits in the chair to get her hair cut. I go into the corner and sit in the shampoo chair. Now I'm sitting across from wallpaper that is like, I, I, I think it's wallpaper, but then it becomes a series of human faces that are dividing and doing all these weird things. My mother crosses the room toward me. She's in this vinyl cape. She, her hair is up in bobby pins. And as she gets close, she says, are you OK? And suddenly, I'm overwhelmed with this ecstatic feeling, like I haven't seen her in 50 years. And I say, oh my god, can you believe that I once lived in your body, and you gave me everything I needed to survive? <laughs> and my mother says, if I didn't know better, I'd think you were on drugs. And I say, fragmentation. <laughs> and my mother says, do you have to be such a weirdo? And I say, I think so. <laughs> and I reach behind me to where the faucets are, because I'm in the shampoo chair, and I lean back and I wash the perm out of my hair, knowing that in some way, I'm just as weird as ever. And in another way, not for long. Okay, welcome to the stage, Lewis Peels. Lewis Peels. First time mosquitoer. So uh, Meryl raised the bar pretty high. I'm just going to ground us for a little bit. Uh, so about the time that Meryl was uh, uh, moving in uh, uh, her white flight from Brooklyn to uh, Long Island, my family was moving from uh, the Bronx to Rockland County, which is a suburb of New York City. Uh, very lovely, very protected, very uh, innocent. And uh, I grew up with an overbearing, protective Jewish mother who would only bring me to the Italian barber. And the Italian barber, Mario, was at the mall. So my entire life, uh, up to the age of 18, I would go to the Nanuet Mall to see Mario. I spoke very little Italian, and he spoke very little English. But he got the job done every few weeks. Uh, about the time of my bar mitzvah, I had more of a bouffant <laughs> than I did uh, uh, sort of the short hairstyles of today. And with my um, uh, uh, freckles and reddish hair. I looked a little more like Alfred E. Newman with a buffant. <laughs> and there's a picture of me holding a Torah like that, which is very embarrassing. Uh, nonetheless, uh, as I aged, uh, I realized I was going off to college in Boston, and uh, I was going to go for um, my first haircut away from Mario. Big deal. So I go to the, uh, they called it the University Barber, somewhere on Commonwealth Avenue at BU. And uh, uh, he, he took these things that I hadn't noticed barbers used before, and they're called clippers. Um, I only got scissors cuts from Mario. So he took clippers, and uh, he was doing his thing. And it turns out that the University Barber was known for giving all the uh, ROTC uh, uh, recruits, uh, uh, haircuts. And so that was the beginning of my first bald spot uh, after I finished with the university barber. And then I went to uh, sort of the supercuts at the time. And for the first time in my life, I got my hair cut by a woman. Now that was an incredible experience because they put your, 
their hands, they kind of massage your scalp a little bit. They put a wet, hot towel on the back of your neck. It was incredible, and I was hooked. <laughs> Years later, my first job out of college, I was working uh, as an environmental activist, and I was working uh, in uh, Lower Manhattan. And each night, uh, I would walk through Chinatown. Now by then, as the activist that I had become, I had long bouffant hair and a really bushy beard. And that was the experience of college and backpacking Europe and, and ending up with this big beard. And when I met my girlfriend at the time, she knew me with this big beard. And I, um, I considered myself to be a guy with a beard now. So that when my friends would see me who I grew up with and they would say, dude, when are you getting rid of the beard? I said, this isn't a phase, I have a beard. <laughs> so I had my beard and now I had my girlfriend and I was working as an activist downtown and I didn't make much money and I didn't have much time. So where do you find a 24 hour barber? In Chinatown. <laughs> So every night I'd walk through Chinatown late after work, hanging out with friends, come home one, two in the morning. And one day I decide that I'm gonna stop and uh, get a haircut. So I go and I get a haircut and this is even better than the supercuts in Boston. There's like two or three people and they wash your hair and they give you the massage and it's amazing. And I have my big bushy beard and she looks at it and she says what I thought was trim and I said, yes, trim. And she, as I sat smiling in the mirror, and she knew less English than Mario, but she took the clippers and went And my eyes got really big. I turned, and now I had a bald spot in the striped version along the side of my face. And with my look of astonishment, I looked at her, she looked at me, and she said, handsome. <laughs> so after that night, when I realized and I turned to her and said, take it all off, I returned and saw my girlfriend, now my wife of 20 years, sitting with my two kids. And when she saw me for the first time, without a beard, she burst into tears. <laughs> And she said, now I can see your face. Okay, next up we got Jerry. Woo! Well, I'm a, I'm a regular storyteller here at the Mosquito, but tonight, I'm afraid I don't have a story tonight. So instead, I'm gonna tell, I'm gonna give you a, superficial, educational, sociological, ethnological seminar on the topic of hair. Now hair in our family is, is a big deal. Now I can see you're looking and you're going, that doesn't look like a big deal, you know? And you're right, a couple times a year I get a cut, you know, run a comb through it in the morning and that's pretty much my hair. Now my wife's hair is, is pretty simple too. She gets short hair, straight, same thing. It's not a big deal. And my daughter, even less so, she rolls out of bed, off to school, doesn't do a damn thing about hair. But every four or five or six weeks, my daughter's life comes slamming to a halt 
And for 24 hours, her entire waking ex existence is about nothing but hair. Now, I didn't know anything about this before I was going to be a parent. I was kind of blissfully, woefully ignorant of this whole thing. Didn't, didn't know anything about it. It all starts a couple of years before my daughter was born. We were foster parents, and we had lots of kids. And they were all different ages, and they were all different ethnicities. And uh, the first time we got a little African-American girl, um, her hair started looking a little, you know, kind of ratty. And we're like, oh, what, what? We, we kind of befuddled. What do we do? How do you, how do you, what exactly? You know, we, we kind of stumped. So we called a friend of ours um, who's an African-American woman. And it was also a foster mother. And, you know, told her, like, we need help. And she thought this is the funniest thing. Two, you know, otherwise, like, reasonably competent, intelligent people are, like, flummoxed about what to do about little girl black hair. And uh, she thought this is the funniest thing. So she gave us a bunch of tips. And uh, kind of got us going on this. Now, we thought it was very funny a few weeks later when she called us completely in a state because she got her first little white girl with long blonde hair and was <laughs> bewildered as to what you do about this. And that's when I realized, you know, uh, little girl black hair and little girl white hair, they are like just totally different animals. They've got nothing to do with each other. Now, white hair, you spend all your time getting grease and oil out of the hair. Black hair, you spend all your time putting oil into the hair. You know, white hair, you tend to have regular daily minor maintenance. You got a brush, you got a comb, and that's kind of it. Black hair, you do no nothing, pretty much, for most, most, most uh, hairdos. But the big deal is, when it's time to do the hair, it's a whole different thing. Now, with the advice of our friend, you know, we started dealing with our foster daughter's hair, and we were kind of proud of ourselves, you know, we do the, you know, we do braids, and we we're kind of muddling through and thinking, yeah, okay, we're doing good. Now, you have to remember, these are little kids, and they're also only staying with us for a week, a month, you know, whatever. We thought we were doing a good job. And then my daughter came along, and she was a baby, and then she was a toddler and whatever, and we were doing her hair, and it was all good until she was about four or five. And then this thing started happening. Now, the first time it happened, we thought it was really funny. We thought it was kind of odd and funny and kind of, what was that all about? The second time it happened, we thought, that's a strange coincidence. And the third time it happened, we realized we were being sent messages. And what would happen is we would be in like a parking lot at a mall or we'd be in a restaurant or we'd be somewhere in the public. And a woman would come up with it. It was always a woman, uh, always an African-American woman, usually older. And they would come up and they would be real, they would say, say, say something really lovely about my daughter. And then sort of in passing, they would say, my sister or my daughter or my neighbor uh, does hair. She's really good. And she, they'd give us a phone number. <laughs> so when this happened the third time, we realized we had some work to do. And uh, they were basically saying, don't ever take that girl in public looking like that. So, you know, we went all in on the hair, and uh, the internet's a wonderful thing, you know, YouTube videos, books on the bookshelves, and, uh, and a whole encyclopedia of, of, of black hair care kind of opened up. So we did it the next couple of years, and it was, it was a lot of work, hours and hours and hours. But after about two years of us doing it, my daughter crying, and she's kind of tender-headed, and you know, on the TV and the videos and the candy, and because it's hours and hours of torturing her, you know? And after a couple of years, we said, we, we're going to turn her over <laughs> for professional hair care. And she's been doing this ever since. But I'm going to give you a rundown. 
Uh, she's 15 year, years old now, and the way it works is typically a Friday, she comes home from school, three o'clock, starts, because now she can take out her hair, and that's a huge part of the project, from three o'clock till she goes to bed at 11 o'clock, taking out the hair, you know, picking, sitting in front of the TV, and it's hours and hours and hours, and when she's done, her hair looks like this. And then the next morning, there's an appointment, and she goes and she gets it washed and blow-dried and combed out. That's the easy part. Then, and I never understood this and I still don't, there's another appointment, not there, but at a different place, which is where they put the hair in. And that goes on for hours and hours and hours. And when it's done, she looks fantastic. Now, in closing, I'm going to give you a bit of advice. Uh, um, this comes from my daughter, and I believe it comes from every African-American woman you will ever meet. Um, if you see a, a woman who's just got her hair done, feel free to compliment her. Um, you know, marvel at the artistry and the complexity and the wonder of some of the hair is just amazing thing. But, and take my word for this, please don't touch her hair. Larissa, Larissa. Thank you, and I want to say to Meryl, I feel your pain. It happened to me too. It was with a hash brownie and an optometrist appointment. Yeah. Um, and also, um, I am the person who had the transitional object of hair. Um, I think I'm mostly really great but a few problems that I have are that I'm very possessive um, and I'm very jealous. And uh, I was very possessive of my mom as a child in a creepy way to the extent that I literally wouldn't let go of her hair until my grandmother brought, bought me a wig that looked like her hair. Um, and I would fall asleep with it every night, sucking my thumb, like embezzling my face into like this wig. Like I really loved my mom and I still really love my mom. Um, but also, I really, really wanted a little sibling. And I, I got one when I was three, but it was a brother. So that was like, kinda, maybe okay. Um, but then we both really wanted another sibling. And I just remember every night, um, if there was like a star, a shooting star to wish on, or just like blowing out our birthday candles, we would like be like, okay, okay, so we're doing it, right? Like, we're doing the like, wishing for a sibling thing, right? Okay, okay, like do do the wish. And um, and we were also, again, like a little creepy. Like I remember <laughs> looking through my mom's handbag, like were there any tampons in there? Could, could this be the time that it was happening? Um, and it wasn't the time and it wasn't the time. And then it was, and I was um, eight years old and um, and my mom and my dad told us that we were gonna have a baby sister. And so like, that was it. We had like, we just like nailed all the things. It was a baby, it was a sister, it was just gonna be great. Um, and actually I was at the birth of my little sister and it was hugely influential because I'm becoming a midwife now. So like, it was a great birth um, and it was beautiful. And the very first thing I saw was my sister's hair coming out. Um, and then she was born, and um, 
it was really great to be a big sister to a little sister. Um, and then she was one, and because I was nine years older than her, I was 10, and then she was two, and I was 11, and she was three, and I was 12, and she just kept getting like cuter and cuter and cuter, and I was descending into my preteen puberty mayhem, and I had like the trifecta, like acne, glasses, um, and braces, and it was just like misery. Um, but, and meanwhile, like my little sister Gabrielle is, was, is like the most adorable person in the entire world. She just like had this like long flowy blonde hair and, um, this cute little button nose. And most of all, she had these eyelashes that went literally up to her eyebrows. And so like my brother and I also had cool eyelashes and people kept telling us that they were cool. Um, but that was like yesterday eyelashes by, like these are the eyelashes. Um, and so again, like, you know, it sort of became more and more of a thing. Like now we have Instagram and we have Facebook and like you have that person and you can just like refresh, refresh, refresh. And you're like, I look as good as you sometimes, but like this was my little sister. And I was just like staring at her and like, like in awe and hating her at the same time. And, um, it became a fixation. And so finally, um, I would babysit sometimes for my parents and um, they were out and we were just hanging out. And um, there was a pair of scissors and I just thought, well, this problem can be solved right now. <laughs> and um, so I said to like my beautiful little angelic sister, like, oh, Gabrielle, like, just close your eyes. We're just, like, doing a little game. And I snip, snip, snipped her eyelashes. Um, and, um, yeah, they, they fell off. <laughs> and um, I guess my parents didn't even realize, you know, like, that she was still just cuter than me. Like, it wasn't even about the eyelashes. And, um, and they grew back anyway, so they do that. So not a good plan if this is, like, a, a trigger for you as well. But, um... <laughs> That's my story, thank you so much. Please welcome to the stage, Meg Doyle. Meg! This story starts with a text to my aunt. Do you have any Febreze? <laughs> so I was with my mom traveling to visit my aunt. We live in upstate New York. She lives down in DC, so we're taking a flight. And the whole time, my mom and I are looking at each other saying, do you smell fish? <laughs> Something smells so gross. Wherever we go, is it the plane? Was it our car? We're like sniffing around all the place. What's going on? And eventually, I'm a weary traveler, so I rest my head on my mom's shoulder. And oh my god. The smell of the fish has penetrated every strand of my mom's hair. And she's got this really thick, beautiful hair. But you know, if you have thick or dry hair, you can't wash it every day. You have to wash it every couple days or twice a week. So I said, Mom, why does your hair smell like fish? I, I don't understand how this could have happened. And the day before, she had baked a really delicious cod. 
But when she took it out of the oven, she, you know, opens the oven door and leans over and gets the cot out. But the steam, which every particle contains some fish oil, <laughs> had sifted up into her hair and just soaked it completely in this fresh cod <laughs> smell. So, you know, it carried in there for days. And as we land at the airport, I said, we cannot just have you walking around Washington, D.C. <laughs> smelling like cod. <laughs> Day old, mind you, so not even good. So we get to my aunt's, and thank God she did have Febreze. And you know you can't wash your hair every day, so we just gave her a little spritz. <laughs> and then she smelled like fish, but that had been laid in a bed of flowers in a garden outside of our house. So it was a big improvement. But this is why, from then on, my mom gives herself a little towel turban every time she bakes fish. <laughs> I wrote down uh, Rafa. I have very bad handwriting. I wrote down Raphael like Raphael Nadal because I have bad handwriting and also people always mispronounce it. It doesn't matter. Um, all right. So uh, who here is a baby boomer, like legitimate baby boomer? Like 1947 to 1960, I guess. Okay, but let's say 1947 to 1956. Well, okay, fine. Baby boomer culture. It doesn't matter. All right, I just wanted to get a little... Um, so uh, I am 30 years old, and my parents are both kind of core baby boomers. My mom was born in 1948. My dad was born in 1947. So they, you know, they came of age in the... They came of age in the, in the late, 19, late 1960s and early 1970s. Um, so uh, when I was a kid, we used to go to uh, a small town of Vermont to, uh, in the summer for vacation. And my parents were very big into yard sales. And every year they would go to yard sales. There would be big yard sales several times a summer. And they would go to the yard sales and, you know, pick up some bizarre, unnecessary thing like a canoe or, you know, uh, a giant block of wood with giant spikes on it that was used for like combing wool or whatever, and they would stick, stick it in the house, and they would be very excited about it for a while. <laughs> so uh, one Saturday when I was 12 years old, so in the, in the core period of uh, humiliation, as several people here have mentioned, <laughs> um, my father happened upon a copy of a very popular cast recording of the musical Hair. And he was very excited. He he brought it home, and something that I something that I noticed only a couple times in my in my life. But um, my dad had a few big musical touchstones growing up. One of those was the song "Peggy Sue" by Buddy Holly, 
And when I was probably about 10, he discovered that they had it in the record club, and he got the CD, and he, he, pop, he popped it in. He said, this is the first record I ever owned. And he just started belting out in a horrible, horrible voice, because people in my family are totally, totally tone deaf. You know, oh, Peggy, oh, Peggy Sue. And he was running around the house screaming and dancing and stuff, and I was mortified. Uh, and I had to turn it off, and he got very angry. So this was a little bit in his blood. Anyway, so uh, he, another uh, little tangent is that my family are not big drinkers. My mom's family are teetotalers, and my dad, you know, drank a little bit when I was growing up. But I'd never seen my father drunk before the evening that he purchased this record. <laughs> he, uh, my mom was, uh, I don't know, she was, she was not in town, but so they invited, they invited some, he invited some friends over, all people of his generation, uh, very old, obviously. Uh, I'm just kidding, just kidding. Uh, some uh, people from the town, there were two uh, family friends who were from Germany, all of the same age, all united by the age of Aquarius. <laughs> and, and so I, I was, you know, I was sitting, you know, doing my own 12-year-old thing, and he, he says, look, guys, I got this record. And everyone got really excited, and he, you know, puts it on the record player, and, uh, you know, they were having a few drinks. I didn't realize how many. And they, they put on, he puts on the record, and it was like a bomb went off. They all, everybody was immediately transported back to, you know, 40 years before, and they were blasting music and, uh, you know, winding around the house, dancing and singing and drinking and drinking and drinking. And I was completely terrified. I mean, I'd never seen my father like this before. I'd never really seen him, you know, in any uh, sort of rapturous celebratory move ever. <laughs> And, you know, yeah, everybody was, you know, everyone's very excited and they're coming by and looking at the little record, you know, the little record sheath and, like, you know, being transported back to their, you know, their cinematic 1960s hippie let your hair down youth. These are, you know, of course, at this point, everyone's like conservative professionals, whatever, who haven't taken a risk in 30 years. But <laughs> anyway, so it was, it was... It was, it was, this is the arc of the baby boomers. It was, it was incredibly traumatic and I just, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I ran out of the house, up the street to where our family friends uh, lived. And I came in and I was like, I wasn't sobbing, but I was totally overcome. And I was, you know, like shaking in fear. And I said to our family, like, what's wrong, Ralph? What's wrong? And I said, my dad got a copy of the hair record. And everybody's at the house singing and dancing at their drunk. And it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Jill Titleman. Welcome, Jill. Okay, the first scene of this story is a sad occasion. Um, my father and I and my brother are in the rabbi's office of the temple to plan my mother's funeral. She lived a perfect life, but it was over. Um, and, you know, we were certainly not Jewish at all, with a capital J, even a small J, uh, except 
the sense of humor was definitely Jewish that I inherited. Um, so we're in the rabbi's office, and we didn't know this rabbi because we never belonged to the temple, not since my grandfather died. And um, I could throw in the line here that I was very embarrassed when I was a teenager because my dad used to park his Mercedes in front of the temple for high holiday. I just have to use that line. But uh, um, we're in the rabbi's office, fast forward, and he already knew he was in trouble because my father, for some weird reason, wanted my mother to have an open casket. And now Jews don't do that. Um, even really reformed Jews don't do that. You're not supposed to, you're supposed to think of the person in life. And it was just this weird request coming out of my father's mouth. And they were married 64 years. And I figured, you know, my dad has the right to whatever he wants to have. Who cares? The rabbi was not happy. And he just, he said, well, before you bring it in the sanctuary, we organize that. So that was okay. Then um, we said, we had, we were pay my dad was paying the rabbi and he, he was writing out the check and he grabbed the Bible to, for something hard to write on. <laughs> and for anybody, people know that, who knew? We didn't know. And the rabbi was horrified that he was using a holy book to write the check. <laughs> Profane, not good. Uh, you're wondering about the hair, and I have to get to that. So the third part of this, third part of this meeting was the end of it, and the rabbi just threw up his hands and he ran out of the room. And we said we had a special request. Um, my mother and father used to live in New Orleans, where I was born, and they loved Dixieland. And my mother's had made one request in her life about her death, and she said, "I would like to have when the saints go marching in played at my funeral." <laughs> and uh, when the rabbi heard the word saint, we said, we have this one request. And I just figured, it's your funeral. You should, you're, you're we were paying for it. <laughs> so the rabbi heard the, that word saints and he was, he was out of there. But on his way out of the door, his cell phone rang and it rang to the tune of Yellow Submarine. And he was like, see, I like music too, you know, okay. So we didn't conclude what was going to happen. So okay, fast forward now, we're in the limousine on the way to the funeral, day of the funeral. And my son has, uh, he was um, in high school, and he had just decided that he would go from his beautiful, lovely, silky ponytail kind of hair. Overnight, he, did a, he had a mohawk. He, he and his friends went and locked themselves in the bathroom. He came out with a very impressive thing, with bald, you know, it was a very big shock. Uh, and my mother was still alive and we had to go see her in the hospital and my father saw him and he, he thought, he, he said, you can't let your, you can't come in the room, you, you know, grandma's gonna die when she sees him. <laughs> but she lasted and she loved him and she didn't care. She wasn't like that, she wasn't judgmental. My father didn't like it. So when the funeral, when it was time for the funeral, we're in the limousine and my father's very upset about my brother, my son's mohawk. And he's saying, this is, and we, we started to laugh a little bit about it. And he said, uh, I said, dad, what are we gonna do? You know, this is him, this is who he is. He's your grandson, you love him. People won't care and he's very upset. And then we, we got a little silly and I was afraid the limousine driver was gonna really think bad stuff about us. And we started laughing and my mother had, had a little baldness issue and so she had this hair piece that she sometimes used and my father had insisted that sh that be placed upon her head for her moment 
And, and so um, my father, and so I said, Dad, what are we gonna do? And he looks at me and he said, too bad we don't have a wig, huh? And I said, I said, well, we do have one, don't we, Dad? <laughs> and he said, well, it's being used right now. And I said, the limousine driver's practically, you know, wrecking. My Aunt Gertrude's in the back, drunk. She didn't know. My niece couldn't care less. And we're, laugh we're laughing. My son is not knowing what to think. He's just not knowing what to think. But he's off the hook. But my father kept saying, the yarmulke's going to fall off the mohawk. The yarmulke's going to fall off the mohawk. This is the big worry. His wife is gone. Comic relief. OK. The funeral happens. It's almost over. Uh, the funeral happens, and right at the very end, you know, this, the formal ceremony is, has ended, and the rabbi then says, now the, the family would like to offer a musical tribute to Hilda. And my son goes towards the stage. He's got the yarmulke on his mohawk, which is not easy without a, some scotch tape. And he bends down to push the button and he does it in this fabulous way. So the mohawk stays on, the stays on, and presses the button. And when the saints go marching in, fills the synagogue, and the rabbi's out the door. He's out the door like he cannot be in the sanctuary when this profane music is played. Sophie Kay. Okay, so this is a story about hair acceptance. Um, so I have curly hair, obviously, and I always have, but uh, I like it now, but when I was a kid, I hated it. And I hated it so much that from the time I was like, old enough to know what my hair looked like. I had my mom blow dry it before I went to school so it would be straight. And then when I became old enough that I could do my own hair, I would get up at 5 a.m. before school, shower, blow dry my hair, and straighten it every day before school. And people that knew that I had curly hair would always be like, oh my God, people would kill to have your hair. It's so nice. You're going to love it when you're older, all this stuff. And I was like, that is bullshit. <laughs> like, <laughs> curly hair sucks. It's so frizzy. I just want straight hair. It's all I ever wanted, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was so ingrained in me that when we, in biology, freshman year of high school, when we did, like, genetics and we were doing um, Punnett squares and going through our genetics, um, our teacher ha had people stand up for like what traits they had. Like stand up if you have blue eyes, stand up if you have brown eyes, <laughs> whatever. Stand up if you have straight hair and I stood up. And <laughs> and my the only people that knew that I had curly hair were my closest friends because even if I, if I woke up late and I didn't have time to straighten my hair, I would brush it out and put it back in a braid so it still looked straight and like put a headband on and stuff so like it was still straight. Um, so yeah, but it was just taking up so much time. And by the time I got to be like junior, senior year of high school, I was like, this sucks, I have so much homework, I don't have time to straighten my hair, like maybe I should 
you know, like start doing the curly thing. Um, and so I tried it a few times when I was in high school. Like a couple of my friends who had curly hair like showed me what to do because I did not know how to do it. Um, and then when I went to college, I was like, you know what? It's a fresh start. I'm just gonna be, I'm just gonna have curly hair because no one, everyone in high school at that point was like, oh, Sophia straight hair. So it was weird if I showed up with curly hair. Um, but I was like, no one in college knows me. I'm just gonna do the curly thing. And so I went to college with curly hair and I've been doing it ever since. And my hair straightener is out of commission. I still have it and sometimes I'm like, well, I'll just see what it looks like. And now I think my face looks weird with straight hair. And um, it's really nice to enjoy my hair. I don't have to get up two hours early. I can get up like 20 minutes before I have to leave, shower, wet hair out the door. And I can even sometimes tell the weather because I know how humid it is based on <laughs> what it's doing. So yeah. Jody, Jody J. Hi everyone. Um, so my hair story is a little bit different than most. Um, so my ex-partner, um, when I first met her, I knew that we'd probably never cohabitat. Um, I have severe OCD and I don't like things, even like in my refrigerator, everything has to be really neat and clean. And I realized very shortly on when I visited her home um, she has a severe uh, mental illness and also hoarding um, to the degree of like massive amounts of things in her home. And so, you know, I continued this relationship because she's a sweet woman and I loved her and, um, and I tried to put that past, like neither one of us is right or wrong. You know, I have my own issues and she has her issues. And so um, for work, she was a CNA and she would do like 12 or 15 hour shifts and she took care of elderly um, folks in Provincetown. And so one day when she left for work, I thought, well, I'll be the good girlfriend and I'll start to straighten up her home. Um, and the way in which I clean my own home, I'm very methodical. I start with one room and I go throughout the home and she has this big captain's house in Provincetown that has probably 12 or 15 rooms. And lots of them are really, you cannot like open the door to get in. So I figured I would start with the rooms that I was able to access easily enough. And she had rescued a dog from uh, Katrina during the hurricane and his name was Blue and he was wonderful. He's since passed. And so Blue Dog was a shedder and, um, and so um, he didn't get much grooming. So there was always lots and lots of sort of attachments with blue whenever I would go visit and it really you know I don't like so I would bring my little lint brush to keep down um, you know blue dog from attaching to me and so um, so this day when she leaves for work I think okay so I have probably have at least you know eight hours you know and so I'll just get started early in the morning she had left and um, and so I start cleaning and I'm like well I really don't know if I can vacuum because it's really thick with like stuff, dog hair and stuff. And so I'm sweeping and now I'm like, okay, so where am I gonna put this stuff? So I had gotten some um, stop and shop brown bags and so I just started loading up the bags with dog hair. And it ended up um, throughout the day that they were accumulating. I kept looking and I was like, wow, do I really have five bags of dog hair? 
is there now six bags of dog hair? And this was really just in like two or three rooms that, that this dog hair was piling up. And, you know, and I, I also I'm allergic. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm allergic to cats and I'm allergic to dogs. And I'm allergic to perfume and I'm allergic to all kinds of shit. And so, um, and so like I have a mask on and I have like gloves on. And, but I want to make this nice. You know, I'm trying to be really, you know, my good codependent self before I got into program. And I work on myself now. <laughs> um, and so... I think this is a great thing that I'm doing, that I'm going to clean her house and she's going to be so thrilled. She's going to love me even more. And um, so, you know, she comes home the next day and I, I, I don't live there, so I go home to my own home and I get this call and she's furious with me. She's like, Jode, what did you do? And I go, what? I, I just, I straightened up, I cleaned up. She's like, no, where did all... Blue's hair go? And I said, well, I bagged it up and it was trash night. So I put it all out and I, you know, the next, I, the cans are out there, but I'm sure it's already gone. Like it's, it went in the trash with the rest of the household trash. And she was just so upset. And I, you know, she's crying and she's like, I can't believe I've been saving and saving and saving his hair. And I thought, well, why? And she said, because now, granted, she's also an amazing artist. And she said, because I was going to um, spin it into wool, into yarn and make a sweater. And so I have to remember that other people's trash are other people's treasures and never clean someone's house unless they ask you. <laughs> Okay, next one up, James. Woo! Hey, guys. Um, I'm really depressed today. Uh, I found out my sister's really sick. What does that have to do with hair, Jim? The guy in the back's like, I thought this was supposed to be funny. Um, and on top of that, my tooth is really bugging the shit out of me all since I woke up this morning, all through work. Got worse and worse, finally went to the dentist, and he said, yeah, it's fucked up. You need penicillin, painkillers, but I never made it to the pharmacy on time, so I started my own pain medication regime. which consists of bourbon, 800 milligram ibuprofen, and the amusing mosquito house wine. <laughs> I had no intention of telling a story tonight, um, but then I thought, hey, you're feeling like shit, why not get up and do the thing that people fear most, other than, other than death? Yeah, I feel better already. Um, so where's the hair story? Okay, here we go. Um, unlike Merrill, well, like Merrill, I did a similar pilgrimage from New York City to Long Island when I was in fifth grade. I was in public school, and I was living, my mom, she was loaded. We lived in this like weird kind of they didn't have gated communities then, but it was kind of like that. It was like this little island in Oyster Bay called Center Island. 
It was like a cop station in the front. And just a lot of rich assholes living there with tennis courts and green pants and There we were. And I met this, I met this kid, uh, he was in my class, his name was Vladimir, I don't remember his last name, he was from Russia, obviously. And he lived, his dad worked on this like super rich guy's estate, and his dad lived in this greenhouse. It was a greenhouse and then a room, with two beds, a stove, a fridge, and him and his dad lived there. And just giant empty bottles of Gallo wine everywhere. And this kid, we used to call him Volvo. That was, that was his nickname. He, he was built like, um, like three college refrigerators stacked up on top of each other. Just this fucking massive. I got into a fight with him one time and he was a sweetheart under his tremendously potentially violent nature. And I did something, I was fucking with him and he, he took me aside and he just, he just he just punched my arm really hard for about a minute. And he said, I could have done that to your face. <laughs> I appreciated that. <laughs> my whole arm's fucking black and blue for like three days. Anyway, so let's get to the hair story. So one day I was hanging out with Volvo at his... At the, at the greenhouse, and uh, he goes, I'm gonna take a shower. I was like, okay. Uh, and there's like an outdoor thing they had, um, which in this world is a cool thing. In that world, not so cool. He goes, do you wanna take one? And I'm like, no, I'm good. He's like, okay. he goes, okay. he just strips, he jumps in this thing, and this isn't really part of the hair thing, but he, <laughs> he had, the, there was a bar of soap. That's all he had. And he was doing the whole, the whole deal with the soap. And I remember thinking, he's washing his hair with fucking soap. I don't know, that's a side thing. To this day, I, but you know what? You can do that. <laughs> it's all bullshit, the fucking, anyway. So, so after that, he says, uh, he goes, hey, you want a haircut? And I was like, yeah. I want a haircut. And I had, you know, fifth grade, I don't know, how old are you in fifth grade? I was born in 60. <laughs> That's not enough information, Jim. Uh, Whatever, you know, but I had nice fucking hair. Nice, red, curly, not none of this, you know, none of this past the 33rd parallel situation. So I was like, yeah, and I, cause I really liked Volvo. Like to be with Volvo, you were set. Nobody was gonna fuck with you. And I was like, yeah, give me that haircut. So he takes me into the greenhouse, sits me down, and puts a bowl over my head, and just cuts around it. So I kind of look like a, you know, shemp. 
from the Three Stooges. Now, he didn't have a mirror. There was no mirror in the greenhouse. You know, but I felt lighter. So, can I smoke in here? And the, and the topic you've chosen is hair. Um, so I rode my bike home, and my mother sees me. <laughs> That's another story. Uh, and she's like, what the fuck? You're not going to school like that. I'm like, cool, I'm not going to school. No, 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 no. Shaved it off, shaved it, bald. Um, and then I looked in the mirror, because I hadn't even seen what Volvo had done. And I, I had a bald head. And you know, I don't know, fifth grade, whatever. I, I was vain. I mean, my hair was, was a good thing. And I was fucked up. I was like, shit, I got to go to school now with this? And I remember I, I, I went to school, and everybody was like, what the fuck? <laughs> what happened to you? Uh, and I, I was, I was, I just remember, I was sitting at my desk and I, just holding back tears. I was so upset about this. And I remember the way I compensated for it was I started doing my class clown shit. And the teacher, uh, you know, every time the teacher turned back, I would open the window, jump out and jump back in. You know, everybody's laughing, blah, blah, blah. Wow, that's a lot like what's happening now, Jim. Deep moment. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, it sucked. And because I didn't prepare any of this, there's no real, I don't have a good finish. <laughs> That's it, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian and Caitlin Langstaff with theme music and editing by Jay Hagenbuckle. Find your next opportunity to join us in person by following us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more stories. Remember, tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.